Well, you can turn to the book of First Samuel, and I think some handouts are going to be coming around for you. So it's been a little bit since we've been in the Old Testament. Um, I think the last time we were in the Old Testament, we were in the book of uh, Psalms. Um, so this is not too far in terms of the, the dates away from uh, Psalm, but it has been a little bit. So it's, it's nice to be back um, in the Old Testament together again. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and God willing, we will uh, get through about verse 10 of chapter 2. So I'm not going to read the entirety of that text. We're going to end up reading it all by the time we get through together, but I'm going to at least give a... Um, uh, so we're going to skip through parts of it as we uh, read here at the beginning to at least give you an overview of what's happening. So the very top there of your handout, I'll put this kind of overview of it, of the text, and then hopefully as you move through it. In that handout, not every, pretty much any text that I'm going to reference is there, but also you can feel some freedom. I'm not going to touch every single thing in the handout unless you look at that and think we'll be here for three days. Um, there are different things that I just didn't have time for us to touch. And so they're in your handout. If you want to go back and look at them, feel free. All right. So here we are. First Samuel chapter one, verse one. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophon of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look at the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, verse 14. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine or put, uh, put your wine away from you, verse 15. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 10, all the way down to verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength 
to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Father God, we come and we submit together as your people to your word. We have a common belief together that the very words we just read are the very words of God. We believe that it is one of the sweetest, kindest gifts we could ever be given is to hear from you about you. Father, we thank you that these words have been written down. Father, thank you that these people lived. Thank you that you worked through despair and discouragement and grief. Father, thank you that you carried them. Thank you that there's hope for us that you will carry us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see our need for you. I pray, Father, that that would be met with the proper amount of brokenness and honesty before you. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would turn us to the anointed Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, for our hope and life. Amen. Well, how do you respond in difficult situations? Different folks, they respond to pressure in different ways. And the truth is we probably all respond differently at different times. I, I don't know why, but I'm a fan of stories where people find themselves in tough situations and they pick creative, less than normal ways of uh, dealing with such pressure. So one of my favorite uh, stories of this is um, of this variety is uh, a flight attendant by the name of Stephen Slater, uh, former flight attendant for JetBlue, uh, not American. This, yeah, this, these upstarts, these things happen. Um, so on August the 9th of 2010, as the plane uh, was uh, idling in the taxiway just after it had landed, uh, Mr. Slater uh, was getting an earful from a very rude passenger about her uh, luggage uh, situation. And uh, he reached a, a, a boiling point. And Mr. Slater picked up the, uh, the phone on the, uh, on the plane and he announced across the intercom, that's it, I've had it. After 20 years, I'm done. He hangs up the phone. He pulls the emergency lever to deploy the door. The chute drops down and he hops on the chute as the wide-eyed passengers look on. Now, hold on. This, this is my favorite part because I would do this if I were him. He, he, he gets ready to go down the chute and he has to climb back up. Here's my, this is the great, because he had left his luggage. Um, so <laughs> the irony is so sweet. So he picks up his luggage, grabs two beers, and uh, heads down the chute. And uh, sure enough, um, uh, the uh, wide-eyed passengers looked on, watched him go down the chute, and watched him walk across the runway with his luggage. Um, and, and we went to his car, and he drove away. He was later arrested, federal fines, you know, ended up costing him about $7,500 per beer. But anyway, that, that's his story. Um, I'm guessing we would all agree that that's probably not the best way uh, to deal uh, with uh, pressure situations. Um, I'm going to submit to you that the, the account we're looking at this morning is a, is a great example 
of how to deal with pressure situations. But I also want to submit to you that the story before us is a lot more than a story about coping with heartache. It is God using pain and suffering to point us to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. Verse 1, we start off there, tells us there was a certain man of Ramathan Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, or Zoph, and Ephrathi. So as the book opens, we are told of a man with a very, very unique background. Elkanah traces his lineage through the tribe of Levi. But the Levites, they didn't actually own any land in the territory of Israel. Therefore, they had to live among the other tribes. And so Elkanah happened to live in the hill country of the tribe of Ephraim. But he's not an Ephraimite. So he's a Levite living among Ephraimites, but he's not an Ephraimite. Therefore, the text tells us that Elkanah was an Ephrathite. Now, Ephrathah is an ancient name for the city of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is situated in the tribe of Judah. And it's also the birthplace of none other than King David. And I've given you a map there. You can look at, uh, at that or study it more later. So even before the, first, the close of the first verse of the first chapter of Samuel... We have a connection to David. Now, I tell you that because I think this is an important theme throughout the book of 1 Samuel. It is named 1 Samuel, but the truth is it might as well be named 1 David. The entire book is centered around David. Everything is about David. So right here in the opening verse, we see our interpretive lens for the entire book. David is a gift of God to lead and save his people, but he is just a pointer to the ultimate gift, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Verse 2, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll read down there through verse 7. He, this is Elkanah, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So verse 2 opens by telling us of the polygamous marital relationship between Elkanah and his two wives. Like other places in the Old Testament, it neither condemns nor encourages uh, the, the polygamous relationship. All the while, it fully shows us the problematic nature um, of it and puts it fully in view. We meet Peninnah and hear that she had given children to Elkanah. We meet Hannah and we hear that she is not. She is barren. Now, as students of the Bible, 
this should raise our attention. First, the Bible demonstrates and shows that barrenness is very serious and it's very difficult. The Bible by no means takes it lightly. The Bible recognizes the deep and God-given desire of women to bear children. This point is made from the very earliest pages of Scripture all the way across the biblical narrative. I've given you in, a, in, your, in the appendix of your handout, there's a theological argument, not a biological argument, a theological argument of why it is innate for women to have a desire to bear children. Now let me pause here and acknowledge that there is incredible pain and incredible hurt by just even discussing the idea of barrenness or the difficulty of becoming pregnant. If you're here and you feel this pain, or you know those that you love who have felt or are feeling this pain, please understand the Bible fully agrees with you in terms of the seriousness of what you're experiencing and the depth of the hurt that it brings. In the Bible, you will find no magic incantations to fix the problem, but you'll meet a God who understands your hurt and has the power to help. While He never promises to heal our physical bodies, He promises to be more than enough to satisfy the depths of our deepest longings. So I believe this story of Hannah will bring you help for despair. I do invite you to listen and dig in and find a God who knows and a God who cares. Not only does the Bible take barrenness seriously, but there's a clear biblical pattern, very clear biblical pattern of God working in major ways through barrenness to bring not only life, but in particular, the lives that become the fruit of the barrenness are some of the most important figures in all of the biblical narrative. I count seven examples of barrenness in the Scripture, all of which God heals. I gave you, a, that's also in an appendix, you can look through those. Here are the names of the seven sons born of barren women. Listen to this name. If this is not a hall of fame, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, just write down the Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Samson, Samuel. I believe the Bible intends to show Mary, the mother of Jesus, is functionally barren as the womb that carried the Son of God was unable to conceive, given that at the time it was a womb of a virgin. So you can add to that list of important figures the name of the Lord Jesus. So given this, we see when we see barrenness, as Bible students, we have every reason to say, uh-oh, something big is about to happen. Well, Hannah was not only taxed with the hurt of barrenness as if that was not enough. She was weighed down by the extra burden of an unloving counterpart who sought to highlight her despair and her hurt. Hannah is in a bad situation. About the only thing that she has going for her is her favored status as the beloved wife of her husband. Obviously, this is the very thing that attracts the ire of Peninnah her tormenting counterpart. 
I want us to see, and this is big, there is no, it's not mere coincidence that the troubled condition of despair experienced by Hannah accurately portrays the troubled condition of despair experienced by the nation of Israel at this time, the time of Hannah. Like Hannah was barren and unable to bring about life from her womb, the nation of Israel was troubled and unable to bring about spiritual life or flourishing. Their events are recorded in this chapter, and these chapters happen around 1050 B.C., somewhere around 500 years after Moses, about a thousand years after Abraham. After Moses and Joshua, the nation of Israel was led by a group of judges, and Pastor Mark led us to see the moral and spiritual bankruptcy realized by the end of the book of Judges, as he capably demonstrated to us in that sermon. The final verse of the book of Judges sums it all up with these words. In those days, there was, this is Judges 21, 25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So like Hannah, the nation of Israel was in a desperate spot. And like Hannah, the nation of Israel was, was vexed with troubles internal and external. While Hannah's nemesis was Peninnah, Israel's nemesis were the Philistines. Like Peninnah, the Philistines were ever-present and ever-bothersome. We will see their pesty ways played out across the chapters of 1 Samuel. Still, Hannah and Israel shared another common circumstance. Hannah and Israel shared the common circumstance of a gracious benefactor. While barren and while discouraged, Hannah was beloved by a good husband. While morally and spiritually bankrupt, Israel was beloved by Yahweh. So as the book of Samuel opens, there's an obvious comparison between Israel and Hannah. However it goes for Hannah will be the marker of how it will go for Israel. And given Hannah's name means grace in Hebrew, we have good reason for hope. But let me suggest that Hannah doesn't just aptly correspond in her condition of despair to the nation of Israel in the time of Samuel, but that her condition of barrenness reflects the circumstance of every one of us. Perhaps you say, well now wait a second Tim, no offense, but I'm not barren. Well let me suggest otherwise. In John, in the third chapter, Jesus is visited by a religious leader. His name is Nicodemus. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says back to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus tells Nicodemus, that if he wants to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. Nicodemus immediately recognizes his inability to bring about his own new birth. He was barren at this task. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, Paul says he declares us spiritually dead. He describes lost man by saying, you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Do we recognize the barren state of our hearts? Hannah could never forget her barrenness, even if she tried. Why? Because pesky Penina was always close at hand, ready to remind her of her inability to conceive and bear life. While we don't have Penina, God has given us His perfect law. As we reflect on the requirements of God in His law, we confront the reality of our inability to bring about spiritual life and fruit. As we consider how He calls us to put Him above all priorities, put Him above all desires, how He calls us to utter allegiance of heart and mind, how He calls us to selfless love in respect of others, we are consistently reminded of our barrenness, our inability to conceive righteous life on our own. Let me suggest that our only hope in our barrenness is the same hope of Hannah. It's the same hope of Israel. Hope in a gracious benefactor who loves us in spite of our barrenness. All right, let's proceed further. So we've looked at her barrenness. Let's look at brokenness. Verse 7, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah said, no, no, Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Not only was Hannah barren, as we can clearly see here, Hannah was broken. She was a woman who understood her desperate condition and mingled her circumstances with tears and sorrow. The text helps us to see how settled was her condition. As it says, it went on year after year. Broken Hannah continues her tears after dinner with her family 
at the holy place. And here we're shown a picture of irony that so effectively communicates the condition of Israel. What a way to open the book. Hannah desperately weeps in the brokenness of her barren state before the Lord. As she genuinely lays out her deep need for God's intervention, she's intercepted by Eli, the high priest. So, make sure you catch this picture. Here's the high priest of barren, spiritually bankrupt Israel. Surely, if anyone understands how Hannah feels, it will be this guy. Yeah, Hannah might be barren, but she, at least she's not in charge of the spiritual uh, state of a nation that's turned its back on Yahweh. If Hannah has the right to tears, this man has the right to buckets of tears. Well, at least, at least he won't be bothered by the crying. I mean, surely Eli has done so much crying, so much weeping over the barrenness of Israel that one more person crying will likely even be noticed. Surely the holy place is surrounded by other priests and leaders mourning over the sin and the sin of the nation. One more crying woman will barely be noticed, probably not even noticed at all. So that's what happens, right? Sadly, unfortunately, not even close. Eli looks at Hannah's brokenness like she's speaking a language he has never heard. It's much worse than that. When the high priest of broken Israel encounters a broken person, he mistakens it for drunkenness. Eli has seen far more drunkenness than he has seen of genuine brokenness. Hannah was barren, but by the grace of God, she was broken. Israel was in a far worse spot. Israel was barren, but sadly unfamiliar with brokenness. Friend, where are we today? We have established that we are barren. We have established, the Bible has established that we are dead in our trespasses. We are unable to bring about our own spiritual life. But are we broken? What does brokenness look like? Hannah is the picture of broken if ever there was a picture painted. Verse 10 and 11 she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look at the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. Brokenness leans in to the Lord. Hannah brought her neediness to God. She wept bitterly and distressed and prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh. Brokenness doesn't relent to or get accustomed to barrenness. It distresses over it and prays that God would change it. Brokenness believes in God's mighty power to move. This term, Lord of hosts, that she used, man, it's used 
all across the scriptures, but not one time before it's uttered on the tongue of Hannah in her broken prayer here before the Lord. She is praying that Yahweh, who has the strength of a thousand armies, would come to her rescue. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel response when sinners see their need for a Savior. It will not be enough to see that we're unable to keep the law of God. Instead, we'll be moved to turn to God and ask that He and He alone will come and rescue us. Finally, notice the aim of her brokenness. The aim of her brokenness is the kingdom of God. She isn't just wanting her barrenness solved. She wants her problem of barrenness solved for the kingdom of God. What woman prays for a son only willingly to give him up? A woman who believes that no one can take better care of that son than the Lord Himself. Hannah did not just give up Samuel. She gave up Samuel to the Lord. When we come to Jesus, we don't simply come to get a ticket punch so we can get on the heaven train. We come to Jesus and we give over the very life we couldn't produce anyway. Just like Hannah gave over the life she couldn't bring about. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Folks, this is the language of exchange. It's the same type of language that Hannah prayed in her prayer of brokenness. Now, bearing that in mind, give me a 90-second excursus. This doesn't really fit the flow, but I found it interesting. So the act of Elkanah and Hannah giving Samuel to the Lord, it's just a really helpful reminder to parents, grandparents, that our children, they're not our own. They're leased. They're not owned. God owns our children, and we're managing them for a short while. The Romans, they used to have this practice whereby during a parade, the Caesar or general, uh, they would have someone as is being paraded through a victory parade, they'd have someone stand behind him uh, as he's going through the parade. And, and the job of this person is just to whisper over and over in his ear, you're just a man. You're just a man. You're just a man. I feel like as a parent, I need someone standing behind me whispering and continuously, they're not yours. They're God's. They're not yours. They're God's. I can especially use that between the hours of 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Um, that's what I'm really glad they're God's. Um, but this is not only true for parenting. It's really true for everything we, quote, think that we own. It's not ours. It's God's. All right, let's move forward to uh, verse 19. 
They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And, due, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as this child is winged, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have winged him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son and, until she winged him. And when she had winged him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and the ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. They slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me a petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The, the bows of the mighty, they're broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We have seen Hannah's barren state. We have seen Hannah broken. By the grace of God, we now have encountered Hannah believing. If you really, if you think of this text on a merely horizontal level, it just doesn't add up. In verse 20, we see that Hannah's prayer for a child was an answered. Hannah, whose name means gift or grace, named her child Samuel, which means a gift of God or asked of from God. But notice how little attention is given to this major, major resolution. We get paragraphs describing her barrenness. We get even more explaining her brokenness. But we get the resolution in just a few words. Why? 
Because this is not the resolution. It's merely a down payment, a sign that the real resolution is forthcoming. If the resolution were that Hannah now has a son, then the rest of the story is hard to follow. As we have one verse describing her receiving the gift, but we get eight verses describing her giving the gift back. Elkanah tips us off that something bigger is afoot. I love verse 23. Only may the Lord establish his word. I thought about us renaming our church Elkanah Baptist Church uh, after, after that. It'd be good t-shirts. Only may the Lord establish his word. That'd be awesome. But we'll stick with what we have. All of this is pointing that something bigger is happening. Bigger than Samuel. Bigger than Hannah. The resolution is not simply solving Hannah's barrenness, but Israel's barrenness. The resolution is Hannah's belief in the coming Messiah. Look at Hannah's song in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh, the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Here Hannah exalts in God. The picture of a horn being raised up is the picture of an animal who rises in victory, rises tall in victory. As such, she rejoices in the salvation of God. God answered her problem. He saved her. Now go to the very end of her song, verse 10. There's a bookend here. It sounds very familiar, but some key differences. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord, that's Yahweh, will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Like Hannah rejoiced over her enemies, God will rejoice over his enemies. He will silence their taunting by the strength of a king. The idea of a king, that's not Israel's idea. It's God's plan. And then we get this line. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Here's the picture of a horn again. This time it's God raising the horn in victory. Well, what is the horn? Well, that word anointed is how we've translated in English. That is mashach, which is the, a Hebrew word which we translate in Greek. Mashach goes to Christ in Greek, which we translate in English as Messiah. Folks, this is the very first reference in all of the Scripture to the promised Messiah. Hannah's faith, Hannah's belief was centered squarely on the saving work of God in and through the Messiah. Sorry, I really don't like the way that last sentence came out. This is not the first reference to all to the Messiah and all the scriptures. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's the first time that word is mentioned of Messiah in all of the scriptures. Hannah receives rescue as she actively believes in the promised one of God to deliver her and to deliver Israel. 
as we see Hannah delivering Samuel, the promised child over the Lord, you can't but help picture Abraham marching up Isaac up Mount Moriah in Genesis 21. Both promised sons, both from barren moms who were ostracized by another wife. And all across the New Testament, Abraham is commended for his faith that he exercised in that episode. Now Hannah exhibits a similar belief, a similar faith, as she gives over her son to the Lord. I've given you more in your handout if you want to trace those comparisons. In so doing, she stands as an example to Israel and to each of us. As we close, I pray God will show us the connection between these three sections and points. Barrenness, brokenness, and belief. The first step in the Christian life is when God opens our eyes to see our barrenness, our inability to produce life, righteous life because of our sin. But merely seeing our barrenness doesn't help us understand, uh, unless it leads us to brokenness, unless it leads us to call out to God for help. This brokenness will always be accompanied by self-sacrifice and self-denial. Finally, barren and broken, that's when we rise in belief. The belief is always singular. It's always focused. It's focused on the Messiah. It's focused on Jesus Christ. Take any follower of God as you're reading through the Bible, and you will always see them in one of three states. Either the Bible is showing us their barrenness, or it's showing us their brokenness, or it's showing us their belief in belief in the Messiah. There are many who claim belief, but have never felt a tinge of barrenness or brokenness. Please be warned, that belief is not Christian belief. Let's pray for our family and friends who exhibit such belief, a belief in Jesus without a sense of barrenness or brokenness. Let us pray that God regularly shows us our barrenness and leads us to brokenness. And let us then, and let us only then, rise in a singular focused belief in the Meshiach, in the Christ, in the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give us some time to reflect uh, personally, silently before the Lord, and then we'll stand together and, and sing. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you again that you're the type of God that allows one of your children to feel this type of pain. There's so much to learn about you in this. The number of times that text tells us Yahweh closed her womb. Father, I also just deeply thank you that you are the type of God that will not ignore that pain. You're available and you're ready to help. Father, thank you for your provident plan 
in the life of Hannah, in the life of Samuel, in the life of David, in giving us Jesus. Father, by your Spirit, will you show us how barren our souls are? How on our own, our souls can't even begin to produce spiritual life and righteousness. Father, would you be so kind to leave us, to lead us to a point of brokenness. To not be content with that. But to want change and to trust that you will bring change. And then by your spirit, will you help us to fix our eyes on the Messiah, on this son of David, this one who could bring healing to our souls, healing to the nation of Israel, the promised one, the son of God, would he be our only hope? And then would we be found like Hannah in sweet, wonderful song, giving praise to you for all that you've done, all that you deserve praise for. Lead us now, Father, as we reflect 